Father God, we want to know you better. We want to know who you are so that we can grow in our love for you as we understand your love for your people so that we can live for you in our lives today so that we can make you known to the world around us. Please would you speak to us now through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, the Queen was apparently the world's most photographed woman. And I guess her funeral tomorrow is going to be the world's most photographed and televised funeral in history, I would imagine. Uh, But one of the the main differences between Britain in 2022 and the last time uh, anything like this happened in Britain, a state state funeral of a monarch, 1952, uh, what's the difference when when King George VI died? Well, one of the main differences is mobile phones, isn't it? So um, I don't know if you've seen, every individual in the crowd, um, as particularly when, when they had that picture of the announcement being pinned to the front of Buckingham Palace, and you've got this massive crowd around, and every single person in that crowd has got their phone held up in the air to record the moment. And uh, that is repeated all over the place, as you see um, crowds desperately trying to kind of record it. And then what happens after that is people, as you can see on the screen, people kind of turn around and uh, they do a selfie of the moment too. So you kind of turn around and turn the camera on yourself, and, you know, here I am, I was there, uh, look, at, um, look at the moment, and it goes on social media or, or whatever. Um, if you think about it, this, this thing about mobile phones and selfies, it, it's surely no surprise and no accident that the rise of the selfie and the sense of human beings' kind of self-importance in the moment, um, that has coincided with the sense of God getting smaller and smaller in our minds and in our hearts and our consciousness and kind of pushed to the sidelines you know, as, a, as a world, as a culture. A few decades ago, well before mobile phones, the theologian uh, J.I. Packer recognised that this was the direction the world was heading in and he wrote a book that, that gives us the title of this sermon series that we're doing in Exodus. He wrote a book called Knowing God. And in that book, he talks about how distant and remote God seems in our modern world. And what he says is, he has this great image. He says, it's like we've got a telescope and we've turned it the wrong way round. Okay, we've trained it on ourselves. That's where our focus is. And I guess if he was still alive today, died a year or two ago, he, he might have added that we've turned the camera around, like the telescope. We've turned the camera around on ourselves. So we focus not on the world around us, but on ourselves. But he goes on with a telescope, he says, what happens is when you, know, when you turn the telescope round, of course, what happens when you look through the wrong end of a telescope? Well, of course, the things that you're looking at get absolutely tiny. Um, they're not magnified, but the, the, the very opposite. If we ever think of God, he goes on, our preoccupation with ourselves makes him tiny and irrelevant like things at the end of the telescope. Even Christians, he suggested, have become more and more preoccupied with ourselves, with doing religious stuff, defending Christian activity in a world that thinks it's irrelevant. It's all important things to do, but 
So much so that we forget and we have forgotten to look up and remember God and who he is. We've reduced God to tiny, shriveled proportions, he says. And as a result, we cannot hope to end up as more than tiny, shriveled Christians. Well, Exodus is about turning the telescope, turning the camera the other way around again. Um, we, be- we began to see last week, uh, Exodus is not first of all about Moses and his grand rescue plans, because Moses' own plans fail. Exodus is first and foremost about God, knowing God. I imagine all of us can think of someone that we know personally, who if we asked them would say, they don't believe in God. Uh, maybe it's someone in your class at school. Maybe it is a colleague, a friend, a neighbor, a family member. You know, and they think Christians are a bit mad, and maybe they like to tell you that. Well, it's common for people to say things like this. You know, I'd like to believe in God, but he hasn't given me any evidence. Or, I, you know, I could never take, I believe in God who, who takes pleasure in people's suffering. You know, a God who made a world full of evil. And it it can be hard to know what to say in response to that. But one possible response is this. Tell me more about this God that you say you don't believe in because actually the more you tell me about this God that you say you don't believe in, I I don't think I believe in him either, that particular God that you're describing there because that's not the God that I know. Which leads them to the question, well, who then is this God that you believe in? Tell me about him. And the question for all of us this morning, if we'd call ourselves a Christian, is, well, how would we answer that if someone asked us? You know, you say you believe in God. Well, who is this God? Tell me about him. What is he like? And Exodus is about helping us to get to know him so that we can then tell the world about him. Do you see? Well, at the beginning of the reading, we heard, you know, Moses has finally settled down to the life of a shepherd in the wilderness. It's not the life that he dreamt of, but it will do. And he's given up all pretensions of setting himself up as Israel's rescuer that he seemed to have in chapter 2. And then suddenly, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so he thought, wow, that's strange. That's not normally what bushes do when they're on fire. Let's go and have a closer look. And so then God calls to him out of the bush. The angel of the Lord speaks for God in such a way that that it is God himself speaking. And so verse 6 He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So do you see, this isn't Moses taking the initiative here. God is taking the initiative And what has he done? Verse 8, I have come down to rescue them, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. I have come down, he says. I have come down. So when we're we're talking to our friends or whoever it is about the God that we say we believe in, this is where we need to start. We know we don't believe in a God that we've kind of made up in our own heads or deduced from some philosophical system or... You know, the God who conforms to some vague standard of godness that someone's given to us. No, we believe in a God who came down to us to show us what he's like. So it's like if you want to meet King Charles. 
You know, if you're a regular member of the public, you'll never get him into his palace. You can't just knock on the gates when, you know, once he's moved into Buckingham Palace, if that's where indeed he does end up living. Um, you're not going to get in, or you can't go and see him. But if, you, if you're lucky enough to be in the walkabout when he comes down, then, well, you might get to shake hands with him and greet him. You see, and with God, we don't have to go up to him. He came down, so we don't have to wonder any longer what he is like. And then God tells Moses what he has come down for. He says, verse 10, to send Moses to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And then what follows is an extended conversation between God and Moses through chapters 3 and 4. And for our remaining time, we're going to look at this conversation that they have. As God comes down, he makes three great statements that help us understand who he is so that we can know him and make him known. So first, from verses 11 and 12, I will be with you. I will be with you. So look at verse 11, first of all, over the page. Moses said to God, well, who am I? You want me to go to Pharaoh and tell him to, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, but who am I to do that? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So do you remember back in chapter 2, Moses kind of took it on himself to rescue God's people, but now he seems to have learned some humility. Who am I? I can't do this. I'm I'm now 80 years old. I'm a nobody. I thought once I might be a somebody, but uh, it's impossible now. You know, don't you remember what happened when I tried to help the Israelites back in chapter 2? They rejected me. They said, who made you ruler over us, they said. Now, in our culture today, think about this. What do we say to that kind of self-confidence, the uh, lack of self-confidence, if we hear someone speak in those, in those terms? You know, oh, you know, who am I? I can't possibly do this. No, well, what we tend to say is, no, no, come on, Moses, you can do it. You'll, you'll be great. You know, just, just believe in yourself. You've got it in you. You know, Moses, come on. You've got the right background. Uh, you grew up in Pharaoh's court. Uh, you'll be able to talk to him. You'll be fine. Don't doubt yourself. You know, don't be the little engine that couldn't. Be the little engine that could, we want to say. But God says something completely different, doesn't he? He says, I will be with you. See, the, 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 the problem is, when the telescope or the camera has been turned around back on ourselves... Well, then all we can say in these kind of situations is, well, go on then, try harder. You'll get there. And that means we're missing out on something extraordinary, that God himself has come down. And, and we know now that he's come down in Jesus Christ. So that it isn't up to us to make it all happen. He's already done it. This is the God we believe in, if we're Christians. So again, the, the God that our, that our friends might have rejected is very often the kind of God that they, they imagine when they think of God, they think of, you know, it's like he's like an angry teacher or a, an angry boss that you can never please, you know, the kind who's always sort of saying, no, that's not good enough. Whatever you do, you know, he's sort of setting impossible tasks and then just enjoys watching you fail. And explaining to you just how badly you just did that. You know the kind of thing? You know, why, well, why would I want to have anything to do with that kind of God? Why, why, why would I want to know him and, and be in relationship with him? I, I want to spend as little time as possible with someone like that. If that is who God is, 
But, but the, this God, the true God, isn't like that. I will be with you. I will be with you. Maybe, you know, maybe we think, I'm, I'm a total failure. I've messed up in every conceivable way. You know, in our world today, actually, we can't let ourselves believe that. We have to pretend it's not true, because otherwise, there's nowhere else to go. Because the camera and the telescope are focused just back on ourselves. Where else can we look? All we can do is desperately try to butter up our egos, tell each other how great we are, and you know, like each other's Instagram and Snapchat photos and write flattering comments. But God says, take your eyes off yourself. It's not about whether you can do it. I will be with you. When you look to the future, whether we're young or old, you know, the thought that everything depends on us, our life, our career, our reputation, our legacy, you know, whatever it is, that's a scary thing if it all depends on us. It's, for many, it's too much. Can I make it to the end? What about when I stand before God to give account for what I've done in my life? Can I, what will happen then? Can I get through that? Well, God says, I will be with you. You know, when people think of God, and even when people think of the book of Exodus, many people will just think of the Ten Commandments. You know, we're going to get to the Ten Commandments. It's in chapter 20. But before God gives his people any commandments, he shows them, no, he is the God who comes down and rescues and says, rest in him before you try and do anything. And so surely it's worth turning our telescopes around again putting down our phones, maybe literally, and looking at him and going, I want to know this God who doesn't reject me with my failures and my inadequacies, but says, I will be with you. Okay, well, that's the first thing. Then the conversation continues. The next statement, I am who I am. Verses 13 to 22. So let's look at this, verse 13 Moses said to God, well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Well, Moses is asking that exact question that we began with. Who is this God? People will ask, what shall I say? And at first glance, God's response is strange, isn't it? I am who I am. No, that that is what I'm asking God. (laughs) Who are you? Well, we, we normally answer questions like that by saying, I am something, don't we? So, I am a student. I am a father. I am a king, even someone might say. I am tall. I am sporty. I am hopelessly impractical and don't even let me go anywhere near any DIY. Whatever it might be. But what, whatever we're doing, we are comparing ourselves to another standard or definition of what it means to be that thing but can you see if we could do that with God if that's how it worked with God well we would in effect be setting something else up as the thing that you have to compare God to in order to define him do you see and and that in one sense would make that thing that you're comparing him to kind of greater than he is So when he says, I am who I am, he's making the point that there is no one and nothing that you can compare him to. In fact, the way the original language works, he could also be saying, I have been who I have been, and I will be who I will be. It's it's kind of saying, I I am eternally 
incomparable. He is who he is. Everyone, everything else has to be defined in relation to him and not the other way around. And that means nothing and no one can constrain him. Nothing and no one can stop him from being who he is and doing what he does. I mean, just think about this. You know, when, when you get a new government, hey, we've got a new government. Well, think when you get a new government, you know, even if you think, and I make no comment on this, but even if you think this is the best possible government we could ever possibly have, we know that, you know, whatever, whoever's in charge, in whatever government, in whatever country, anywhere, even, despite their best efforts, can be thrown off course by events beyond their control. You know, whether it's a war, pandemic, a national bereavement, of all the plans and, and things that were just, you know, we've just got everything in place and we're going to do the right thing, they think. But no, it, it's not going to work. And it never works, really. But God is not like that, do you see? God being I am who I am, as it were, means he's not constrained and he's not caught out by external events. He's not surprised. He is constrained and defined only by himself. That is who he is. And so he says, verse 15, and, and after that, in effect, look at what I've done. This is who I am, the one who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have been who I have been, so you can trust me. And verse 17, I've promised to bring you up. No ex external events, no Pharaoh can stop that. And then he makes more promises in verses 18 to 22 about what he will do. So do you see, he's not constrained by external things that could happen to him, but he is constrained by himself. And that's a good thing because it means that when you look at what he's done in the past, you know that he's going to be like that in the future because he is who he is. You know, we're not like that either, are we? You know, you can't guarantee someone might have behaved in a certain way in the past, but what if they change? This is one of the things, the wonderful things about God. You can say, no, God is a God who does not change. He is faithful. He is who he is. And that means then that the way that we know who God is, is by what he does. Because he's saying everything I do will be in total harmony with who I am. It won't be an accident. You know, with human beings, it's not like that. We think, well, you know, he, he, he behaved like that. Is that. Does that show us who he actually is or is that a pretense? No, with God, it won't be like that. So do you want to know what kind of God God is? Is he a spoil sport? Can he be trusted? Can I trust him when I'm getting grief from my friends at school with, you know, because I'm a Christian? Can I... Can I trust him when life is tough at home or at work? Can I know that if I go his way, it's going to be okay? Even if that's difficult and painful, and even if that involves making really sacrificial lifestyle choices that cause my friends to say I'm crazy, we need to know whether this is a God we can trust, whether he is who he says he is. We need to know he's a promise-making, promise-keeping God, who is totally consistent, who doesn't change, so that when we hear that he sent his son to die on the cross, we can know, actually, that's, the, that's still the kind of God he is today. See, that is where ultimately we look to see what God is like. The, what, he's come down, he's come down ultimately in Jesus, and Jesus has died on the cross. No need to guess what God is like now. No need for those conversations, you know, that we have when we think, oh, I like to think of God like this. I like to think God's like that. No, you don't need to do that. 
because of what he's done, we can know he is a self-giving, people-loving God that we can trust. And he won't have changed. He can't change. He is who he is. He always has been. He always will be, even for us today in London in 2022. Well, what difference will that make then as we head on through our lives? That brings us to the third statement that we need to see, which is from chapter four, basically. Now, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm just going to pull out a few things as we, as we look at it. So, I will help you speak, is the headline for this. I will help you speak. God has made these great statements, but Moses is still suffering from a crisis of confidence. So, verse one, Moses answered, but what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? So what happens is Moses is given a number of visual aids. There's a staff that he can throw onto the ground that turns into a snake. He puts his hand inside his cloak and it becomes leprous and that means he's got a horrible skin disease. But then he puts his hand back inside and it's restored. And then there's water from the Nile that he's given and he can pour it on the ground and it's turned into blood. You might think, well, what's going on this? It's all random magic tricks. I mean, what's, what's going on? But actually what they are, these are a foretaste of the plagues that will come later on Egypt and on Pharaoh. And this is God continuing to give Moses confidence, not in himself, not in in Moses himself, but confidence that God will be with him. But Moses still pushes further. So verse 10, you know, pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since You have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And the the replies from God start to sound just a little bit more impatient. So the Lord said to him, verse 11, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. And then verse 13, this is fantastic. Look at verse 13. Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. And so God says, in effect, do you still not get what it means for me to be with you? You know, you're scared that you can't speak. Well, hang on a minute. Who gave human beings their mouths, he's just said. You know, you're scared that they won't listen. Well, well, well who makes them deaf? Who's in charge of their ears, in other words? Is it not I, the Lord... Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And as a concession to him, he says, take Aaron. He will become your mouth. So that whatever I say to you, you say to him and he says it to the people. And this is getting at something that many Christians can resonate with. You know, that that feeling that we just can't possibly speak to others about Jesus because we we won't know what to say and they won't want to listen. You know, those those are the two basic things that we think, aren't they, so often. Won't know what to say, and they won't want to listen, so best just not to say anything. You know, when you picture that atheist friend, that may be part of what you're thinking and feeling as you picture them. You know, who am I? I can't do this. You know, I always miss the opportunities. I think back, I think back, you know, I go go over a conversation after having it, I think of all the things I could have said if, I, if I'd had the right words at the right time, but you know, it never happens in the moment. You know, I wish God would send someone else, we think. 
maybe a bit like Colin Firth there playing George VI in the King's speech. Just can't get the words out. And God says, you need to realize the power is with me, not you. I am who I am. I made your mouth, I made their ears. And you are just a representative like Aaron. That's what Aaron's doing here. He's, a, he's just a representative who literally just passes on what he's told. Your job is just to pass on the message. It's not our message, after all. It's God's message. Our job is just to pass it on. So on Moses goes back to Egypt with his family. And just as we finish, we come then to the extraordinary verse 24. Now, I could have just not said anything about this at all. You'd have, if you went home and read it, you'd be scratching your heads thinking, what on earth's going on here? So I felt I probably should say something very briefly. But look at, look at verse 24. So it's all been going fine. And then at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. <clears throat> so the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to <clears throat> circumcision. So this does sound strange, but throughout these chapters, what we've seen is that things that happen to Moses later happen to the whole of God's people as he leads them out of Egypt. Whether it's, you know, he's, he's rescued through water in chapter 2. He lives in the wilderness. He's given miraculous signs like the staff and the leprosy and turning water into blood. And this little episode here seems to be another example of that. Later we'll come to the Passover in Exodus, where God's people must paint the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so that their firstborn sons are not killed by the angel of death. And do you see, this seems to be the same kind of thing in miniature. Blood must be smeared. The servant of God... This is the key. The servant of God must be personally right with God in order to lead the people of God. You can ask me more about that later if you want. But the headlines in these chapters are this. Get the telescope turned back the right way. Turn the camera around and look at the king. Look at God. Realize who he is. That we can know him because he has come down in Jesus Christ. I will be with you, he says. I am who I am. I can't be compared with others, but that means you can utterly trust me. And I will help you speak. So when you're having that conversation with that atheist friend about all the gods that you don't believe in either, but here's the one that you do, well, he'll give you the words. And if you're wondering what to say, well, all, our job is simply to pass on, like Aaron, to pass on what we've been told. We don't have to make something up. We just have to say, look, I believe in the God who sent Jesus into the world so that we could know him. I believe that if you look at Jesus, you know God. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And that means that he paid for the consequences of, of how I've rebelled against God in my life. And that means that he accepts me no matter what I do. He loves me. That is the God I believe in pass on that message he says it's his message he made your mouth he made the ears of the person you're talking to we're not responsible for the response whatever that comes we our job is just to pass on the message have confidence in this God who says 
I will be with you. I am who I am. I will help you speak and trust him to do his work. Let's pray now. Father God, as we reflect on our own response to what we've heard, would we have a renewed sense that we need to look to you, to who you are in Jesus Christ, to what we see of you in him, that he has made you fully known to us. And give us confidence today that you do not change that you are incomparable, that you are with us. And so as we meet people this week, wherever you take us, give us confidence that you are with us. Give us confidence in the message that you've given us. Thank you that we have that confidence because we're not looking into ourselves, we're looking at you. And so we pray in Jesus' name.